Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, for the last episode of Season 3, it's with a great pleasure that my guest is Professor Ilan Pappen. I don't think there's need of a longer introduction. Ilan is an obviously worldwide known historian, but also activist. I just want to say that obviously is a professor of history at the University of Exeter, in the UK with a long list of publications. Uh, today we're going to talk about Jerusalem, we're going to talk about his views about uh, you know, the city, contemporary Jerusalem, and obviously politics, which we can't escape. But first, Ilan, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. It's a great pleasure to be with you in your, uh, on your podcast. First question I want to ask uh, is about uh, sort of your personal life. So looking back at your work, your personal life, what is Jerusalem in this picture? What is Jerusalem in your life, in your in your work? And how does Jerusalem look like for you? Yeah, well, as, as you probably know, Roberto, I was born in Haifa, uh, a city with a very different uh, DNA than Jerusalem and uh, very different uh, relationship between Arabs and Jews compared to Jerusalem. In many ways, the the opposite of, of Jerusalem. So 
Jerusalem for me was very distant until I started my BA uh, at the Hebrew University uh, in the mid-1970s. Um, I was quite excited in Jer by the Jerusalem in the 1970s. I think people who would see Jerusalem today would be uh, not familiar with some of the features that we were familiar with in the 1970s. Because I was still naive politically, I didn't realize the more the, the layers of occupation, oppression, uh, when I was uh, studying BA, it's only later that I was exposed to, to Israeli settler colonialism, apartheid, and so on. So, But it, nonetheless, in the 70s, you could easily walk uh, around uh, Jerusalem. There was a sense of uh, an easy flow between East and West and West and East. Um, there were students coming from East Jerusalem to study at the Hebrew uh, University. So... Um, uh, it looked to me like a very uh, uh, intriguing place, uh, less uh, polarized and uh, violent in many ways than it became in my eyes a bit uh, later. So my first, my first impression was almost coming from a bubble, which is Haifa, into a real-life place where uh, people uh, have uh, real concerns and... Uh, uh, are uh, struggling with the hardships of, of life. Uh, Jerusalem was much poorer than the Haifa I knew, at least. Uh, uh, the Palestinians I knew in Haifa were more of, I would say, middle-class uh, uh, background, and the Palestinians I, I, I met in Jerusalem were, as you know, from a much wider spectrum of the social, of the society. I, I, I met... Uh, a bit later, in the late 70s and early 80s, I became more and more uh, uh, connected to, to, to people like Faisal Hosseini and, and if you want the Jerusalem, East Jerusalem elite on the one hand, but I was also familiar with the other side of the more of the poorer neighborhoods of, uh, of Eastern uh, Jerusalem. So it was, it was like an opening to, uh, you, had, you had kind of a reality check, I think, when you came to Jerusalem, but I have to say, it, it took me some time to understand that the reality check I had was very limited compared with what I will discover for myself, at least, a little bit later uh, on. I'm curious about your choice. Why and how you became a, a historian of Palestine and Israel? Well, I, I uh, loved history from very, very early age, I must say, and uh, I didn't like school. Uh, I, I was not a very good pupil, but there were two topics which I did quite well in high school. And one was Arabic, and the other one was history. Uh, and, and I do believe that um, historians, uh, of course, people become historians or uh, uh, philosophers or economists, uh, for, for different reasons. Uh, but the, the good historians I, I met, uh, and I met many uh, uh, along the way, uh, have a similar story to mine when it comes to why did we choose history? And this always comes back to a very early age where you are fascinated by the past, uh, uh, whether it is because you have read books about it, a younger generation was already exposed to this through television. When I was young, there was no television. 
Um, so I, I think that there is something that excites historians that maybe doesn't excite everyone. Like a statistician can be, you know, I, I met statistician who get excited on uh, on finding something which is around the 0.5 variations, and, and I could not understand them. Uh, so, so I think, yes, it's, it's, it's something in your constitution that makes you look at the past as a fascinating foreign country that you want to visit. Uh, it's, again, only later on you understand also the relevance of the past to the present. But I think the early stage is really... Uh, love a love for history uh, because it's a kind of an exploration, a kind of, kind of an adventure. Uh, like some people would love to meet, uh, you know, visit uh, foreign countries with a similar excitement. So, so I think uh, that that was for me the history. That the moment it became more a profession, I had other choices to make. What kind of history do I want to, you know, my the, the history of my own country? A history of someone else's country, and uh, this went in tandem with my political development. Because the more I was politicized, the more it was clear to me that whatever professional history I'm interested in, it has to be relevant to my political outlook and my political understanding of the situation. And that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to ask you, why not choosing uh... Roman history, which is fascinating, but certainly less controversial than looking at the history of uh, Israel-Palestine, particularly the contemporary history. Is, uh, is there uh, any other reason other than politics? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say it. You know, when, when I, I started getting into trouble, one of my children asked me, said, Daddy, what's wrong with Finland in the 17th century? <laughs> because he said, because you chose Palestine her whole life, and it's true, the whole family was affected by a choice of history. You know, uh, uh, Finland in the 17th century definitely would have retained me in, 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 in Haifa uh, in a good relationship with my own tribe, so to speak. Um, is it just politics? No, I don't think it's just politics. I, I think that there is a certain, for every one of us, there is a certain uh, moral constitution, a certain moral outlook, of, uh, and everybody has their own view on what is right and what is wrong. And uh, for me, the moment I went into the history of my own country, I was lucky that the moment I made this choice, unlike some other Israeli historians maybe, I was in a place outside of Israel, already aware that this is a fascinating field because it, there are contesting narratives about it. And, and um, the more I went into it, I understood it was not just a, member, a, a matter of being uh, intrigued by it, that it had really relevance for the sense of injustice I felt. Uh, the more I was will, uh, able to understand the reality in my own life. Uh, especially the way Palestinians were treated and what they were experienced. So these are really journeys. These are developments. They don't happen in one in one day. Uh, uh, but but I think that uh, the more I understood, the more I felt morally about the reality, the clearer it was for me what kind of history I want to write. 
what period I'm interested in uh, and what choices I should make as a, as a professional historian. Now, your work has been, uh, your work as historian has been often labeled as controversial, to say the least. So I was wondering if you can tell us when and how you actually moved away from, uh, you know, the traditional historiography of Israel Palestine, probably the same historiography that you were taught in school uh, back in the 60s and 70s. And what did propel that change? Yes, I, I think the most important thing was uh, a conscious decision that I took already as a BA student in the, in the mid-1970s that if I really want to have a more comprehensive view on the history of the country, I have to get out of the country. I need to see things from the outside. And I consciously chose... Uh, of course, I, I, I went to Oxford and I, and I was accepted by Oxford, although I have to say in, in the mid-70s, unlike today, it was very diff very easy to, <laughs> to be accepted as a PhD student so that your listener would not think that there had to be very, something very special to be accepted by Oxford. They were looking for PhD students. Not many people wanted to do PhD in the 70s. It's interesting. Anyway, so... Uh, Oxford was a choice, but I, I, even if I went to the States, I think I would have made the same choice as I made in Oxford, which was to look for an Arab supervisor, to look for someone who is different from the teachers I had, not because I totally knew what was wrong with what I was taught, but I felt that I needed uh, a more comprehensive look at this. And I remember when I met my supervisor, Albert Hurani, the late Albert Hurani, the great historian of the Middle East, uh, and he said, how are you going to go around this PhD? And I said, you know, um, I'm interested in political history, and I understand that there is this uh, law of uh, secrecy in the British archives and the Israeli archives as well. And because we are reaching 1978, uh, uh, I thought that, uh, oh, I was already talking with him in the 1980s, so I was, I was aware that 1978 was already behind us. I said, I understand that there's a bunch of new document documents and a lot of new documentation that is declassified for the first time in British archives, American archives, United Nations archives, and the Israeli archives. And uh, I want to see the primary sources for 1948 because uh, they were not open to the historians before that. Uh, in fact, I was quite naive in those days. I thought that I would find the objective truth <laughs> of what happened. I, didn't, uh, I, I was uh, not so much aware of the connection between moral positions, nar national narratives, and so on. But I thought, you know, the British documents in particular would be probably more neutral than, than anybody else's. In any, in any case, he said to me, you have to think about it twice, uh, because he knew me already. And said, why? He said, it will get you into trouble. I'm not discouraging, he said to me, but knowing who you are, you are going to get into trouble if you're going to choose 1948. And I said, what is he talking about? I'm going to the public record office in London. I will report what I found in the documents. How can it get me into trouble? Um, the rest, as they say, is history in many ways. But uh, yeah, it, it was a, a choice of a career namely to do a manageable PhD, 
to look for a place where you have a lot of new resources and yet connected to what interested you, which is your own country's history. Uh, and, of, and of course, I should just add, I was already aware that 1948 was a very formative year, and I was aware that in one narrative it was a miraculous year, and in another narrative it was a disastrous year. So I was also intrigued by the fact that one history is the mirror image of the other history, and, and I wanted to, say, to see whether there's something in a document that can bridge over these two very contradictory uh, histories, which I was already aware of, but I thought professionally, maybe I can find something that is not being told in a more committed narrative, so to speak. Allow me to dig briefly into your own past and uh, perhaps your memories, um, because obviously we've all been shaped by what we learned in school. And I was wondering, since we are talking about 1948, do you recall how 1948 and perhaps also the questions related to Jerusalem and its divisions were taught back in the days, in your, let's say, high school days? Oh yes, yes. I I remember. Uh, I remember in '67 going with uh, my class uh, to the victory parade. Uh, I remember joining what I only afterwards realized was a very right-wing uh, organization masquerading as a professional group of archaeologists that my f uh, my family was interested in. So we went to all these. Uh, tours uh, around Jerusalem, uh, and uh, I was very much uh, as an as as a very emotional person. I was very much taken by this euphoric uh, uh, mood of return, redemption, uh, the sacredness of the place. So, so uh, the high school created in me uh, was supposed to produce. Uh, a very loyal uh, disciple of the Zionist narrative about uh, Jerusalem. Um, it's really only after I finished high school, and when I st and only when I reached the university, and especially when I went out of the country, that uh, I began to question very seriously. But but as a young person, I I, I was very much uh, how shall I say uh, captivated. By, by the by, by the Zionist uh, uh, narrative, and uh, uh, yes, compared to quite a lot of my friends who are also anti-Zionist as I am today, uh, when I ask them, many of them came from families that were already anti-Zionists, so they received this kind of more critical point of view at home. I cannot blame anyone in school or my home for my views. I, I really developed them totally individually, regardless of the education I received or the way my family was uh, looking at the reality. It was a very Zionist environment. And for a while, of course, as a young person, I was very much uh, taken by it. I guess, I mean, in Hebrew, you I don't want to butcher Hebrew, but uh, the word Geulah, I mean, the redemption, is very captivating, right? I mean, it's, it, it feels like you're doing something right. Uh, and you're not the, the only guest remembering those days that had that kind of feelings. And of course, they've been revisited later on in time. But uh, it's fascinating to see there was this collective feeling about, uh, uh, shall we say, being righteous? I mean, like uh, being on the right side of history, like redeeming what was lost. Absolutely. 
absolutely righteousness is the very right uh, term to describe it because righteousness is not doesn't only mean that you are on the right side of history righteousness uh, means that you are full of uh, uh, pride of what you are doing and and uh, you, your the, your own view psychologically speaking your self view is a high praise of yourself as a nation as a group and then also as a person um, of course righteousness becomes uh, ridiculous when it is uh, uh, continued against uh, actions and policies that are unjust to the bone but but yeah definitely I, I think this is uh, uh, you have to remember also uh, in my since I went to the army still quite naive about politics and uh, a very important part of the initiation in the Israeli army is Jerusalem Jerusalem plays a very important role especially the wailing wall because I went after 67 war uh, to, to, to the army uh, uh, it's it's the kind of uh, the secular religious it's an ambiguous kind of ceremony that they do there because most of the soldiers are secular, but they get the Bible and they take an oath uh, in front of the Wailing Wall uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to show allegiance to the state and, and, and its values. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, um, the, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm aware of what I had to leave behind me on the way out. Uh, it's it's not a change of view, you know. It's not an easy. It's it's a you, it's, it's a liberation. It's a, it's a liberation, of course, not compared to any liberation struggle of the Palestinian National Movement. But it's a liberation. You 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 need to uh, to liberate yourself from uh, the kind of value system that was uh, invested in you um, and. Uh, uh, I'm always surprised when I meet other uh, Israelis who were able to do it because I know uh, how difficult it is uh, to go through that uh, journey. But we have to find an easier way because I, my, my aspiration in my life now is to make sure that a lot of Israeli Jews will go in the same direction. But I, I know it's not easy to ask of them what I found myself not easy to do, but I did. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy transformation. And uh, no, no, having not. part of my family in Israel, I, I can see how hard it's even to engage with this kind of difficult conversation. Everything seems to be crystallized at the moment. And, uh, you know, you, you know, you yeah. just get into that kind of conflict with no, no solution and, and no really uh, anyone eager even to listen to, uh, you know, different arguments. Although I have I have some qualms about the present reality because when I was uh, in the early twenties or in my teens there was no internet uh, I I didn't have any alternative sources of information young Israeli Jews today have a way if they wanted to which for me was difficult have a way of knowing and and we know much more today than we knew in 68, 69. Uh, you know, you read Raja Shahadi's uh, books, uh, even the Palestinians in the West Bank in 68, 69 said, maybe it's not too bad, you know, maybe, you know, there, there was this uh, mis 
misperception, of course, that maybe this is not just a bad thing, maybe something good would come out of it. Of course, we were all wrong. It was, it was a very vile uh, program that uh, didn't mean for one moment to be uh, helpful or, or humane towards the Palestinians. But, but it, it was difficult to find the, the alternative sources. And uh, that's why I have a lot of admiration for the anti-Zionist group called Matspen, of which I'm sure you know, because they were without the internet and so on, they, they, they had the knowledge and the perception to be able uh, uh, to say there's something terribly wrong, not just with the way the occupation uh, is being operated in 69, 70, 71, but with the ideology that justifies that kind of occupation. And, and they really uh, uh, came before all of us uh, uh, later on, we're able to understand it much in a more comprehensive way. I would say in a more professional way, because for them, this was more a, an intuition about what was wrong. And, and we I think some of us substantiated later on with proper uh, research as well. I want to leave politics for uh, later. And, and I have a couple of questions about your okay. sort of a professional work first. And one is very much about your early work which is also connected to Jerusalem. You, you wrote a book uh, about Indeed. the Husseini family. And I was, and I was wondering right. if you can tell us a little bit more about the history of this family. And also, if you can project uh, that family into the 21st century, what has been left of the power and image of the Husseinis? Yeah, definitely. My main motive, when I wrote the Husseinis, I was already aware of... Uh, of my own agenda in, in, in the next uh, projects that I did, which which is sense that, and I wrote the Husseinis is probably the only book I wrote first in history, in, in Hebrew, I'm sorry, and, and then in English. Most of the books I wrote first in English and some of them were translated uh, into Hebrew. I, I really felt that I want to uh, fight the Israeli uh, myth that Palestine was an empty land waiting for people without uh, without land, and and uh, I, I remember I was quite enraged by by the way Palestine in the 18th century, 19th century were presented by atlases uh, in Israeli schools, by the websites already the web websites already by the Israeli foreign ministry and so on, and and I thought that through the history of a very important family you could see that there was life. Uh, and there was a society, and there was culture, uh, long before uh, the Zionist uh, colonization uh, uh, began. Now, the, the, the importance of that family is, of course, that they were able to transcend from one period to the other and, and slowly becoming more and more important in running not only the affairs of Jerusalem, but also the affairs of uh, large parts of, of Palestine. Um, and, and, and they are a fascinating uh, story, although I have to say that the family does not always accept my narrative, which is not only my narrative, it's the other professional historians as well, so I have to be careful here. I, 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 I really believe that uh, this was a very humble family that uh, exploited um, the troubles of another family called the Hosseinis and uh, acquired their name, their genealogy, around 1700, around 1700, and uh, uh, slowly became a, a power base 
by their ability to mediate between the Ottomans in Istanbul or their governors uh, uh, in Damascus and Beirut and, and Cairo and the society and the society. And uh, I, I found the family fascinating because it had so many different careers in, in it, which I'm sure if I would have taken another notable family like the Halidis or Jarallas uh, uh, or Nashashibis, I'm sure I would have found that as well. But I, I, I thought that the Husseinis were in particular diversified. Uh, there were people who chose business, the people who chose uh, literature, uh, academics, people who chose politics, uh, uh, religious uh, uh, career. And, um, and I think that this uh, is an indication that Palestine, like the Husseinis themselves, had it not been for Zionism, was on the way to build a modern society in, in Palestine. And, and, and um, you know, I'm a, I'm a socialist by, by ideology. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in love with aristocracies of any kind. <laughs> um, I'm quite a Republican in this, in this respect. But, but I, I, I remember my, my uh, mentor, uh, Albert Horani, saying to me, you know, you might feel uh, some uh, disrespect for, for people who are powerful with money and so on. But he said societies, and I agree with him, societies like the ones who were in Palestine needed this middle ground, this middle class, this, if you want this upper middle class. They were not aristocracy in the European sense. But you needed this upper middle class to help move from a certain era to another era, to withstand all kinds of political dramas, economic crises, uh, uh, and, and, and I think it's true, and, and, and I think that not only the Husseinis, I think notable families in, in Jaffa, in Haifa, in Nablus, were able to, to play this role uh, uh, in what Albert Horan used to call it the politics of notables. They were able to play this politics of notables, and I think had it not been for very aggressive Western imperialism on the one hand, and in the case of Palestine, of Zionism, I don't want to idealize what would have happened anyway. Nobody knows. Uh, you don't know what could have happened in history. But there is a sense that Palestine, with its particular unique character and, and, and with families like the Husseinis, could have moved much more smoothly into the, into the future. And, and I was fascinated by these people. I didn't try to idealize them. Now, for the second part of your question, um, in, in fact, it's interesting. I, I, I write in the book that the Husseinis were able to deal with everything. With uh, in the late 1980, in the late 18th century, Palestine was a battlefield between Egypt and Syria, and they were able to deal with it. They dealt well with Napoleon's Napoleon's invasion. Then you had the very ambitious uh, Muhammad Ali. And they were under quite a ruthless Egyptian rule for, 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 for nine years. And then you had the European intervention since 1840. And even the First World War, they, they dealt very well as, as a leadership with, with all these challenges. They were totally ill-equipped to deal with Zionism. A, because they didn't understand. I think they, they really did not understand what Zionism was all about. Maybe because the Zionists themselves, to begin with, were not totally sure what they were doing there. So I don't just blame them. 
And when they understood what they are facing, uh, it was too late. It was too late. Um, you know, the one, the one, uh, uh, there were two Husseinis, one is very famous, Abdul Qadir Husseini, uh, and, and Ishaq Musa Husseini, the, the author. And there were two or three uh, Husseinis who, who already in the 1920s and 1930s were really apprehensive of what is going to happen, almost predicting the Nakba, uh, the catastrophe. Uh, but most of them were, you know, they looked at the objective facts. We are the majority. There is an international commitment to give Iraq to the Iraqis, Egypt to the Egyptians. Surely they're going to give Palestine to the Palestinians. Uh, and uh, only in the 30s when they started to realize uh, it was too late. The, the, the Jewish community was very strong. And of course, after because of the Holocaust, uh, they had very little chance of convincing the international uh, community that they had the just cause, uh, unfortunately. And um, so it was a fast, for me, it was, they were relevant to the first, up, up to the first half of the 20th century. They were not so relevant after, you know, in the second half, uh, after the Nakba. You can find, of course, there's Faisal Hussein, you can find Husseinis within the, the attempt to create the PLO, and the Fatah, but as you know, Roberto, uh, the Palestinian national movement emerged in a very revolutionary way, not only in the sense that it was a revolution of liberation, but also as a social revolution. All the social structure before the Nakba totally disappeared in the refugee camps where the movement uh, reappeared. Uh, so yes, individually, some, Pal some Husseinis were were connected to it, uh, but um, but I think mostly it was a it was a revolution that left them behind. Faisal Hussein is interesting because I remember he told me once, and I don't know how I never examined it, that he thought that in a very bizarre way he said to me, um, my family name is less important for my position. It's because I'm the son of Abdel Qader. That's what is important. And he said, if it was Abdel Qader uh, Daburi, he said, if he had another name, I would still uh, uh, be lucky because of my father's name to have a standing even before I did something in the society. So he didn't think it had to do with the name Husseini. It has to do much more with the heroism uh, and the heroic image of his father than than the family. Uh, although, I don't know, I mean, I mean, you know, there's so many intermarriages and so on afterwards. So Husseinis did play still an important role in, in some of the uh, 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 institutions later on that tried to re revive the Palestinian national movement. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned the Usahinis and the question of the Europeans, and I want to ask you something which you probably don't remember, but for some reason stuck with me. About 10 years ago, we were in a panel together. Uh, it was a Brismas conference in Brighton, and we were talking about the question of religion. 10 years ago, try to use religion to explain European intervention was seen as problematic because many many historians say, well, you don't really have a smoking gun. You don't have to... You don't have the evidence to prove that uh, David Lloyd George was religious and he wanted to conquer Palestine, just to make a very silly example, or others. But nowadays, with a, with a strong power, visible power of movement like uh, Christian Zionism, things are different. And I was wondering, you know, what, what is your view as an historian about the role of religion, the control of Palestine and of Jerusalem? Yeah, definitely. It's interesting how you bring it up, Roberto. I'm, I'm finishing. Well, if I was not talking to you, I would have finished it. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I told my publisher because they're waiting every day for the final uh, manuscript. I'm finishing a manuscript this, these very days uh, called Lobbying for Zionism uh, Across the Atlantic, which is a history of lobbying for Zionism from the mid-19th century until uh, today. And it's two things come very clearly out of this, which I think are very relevant to your question. One is that Zionism was a Christian project before it was a Jewish project, a Christian evangelical project. I tended to agree before I wrote this book with people who said, yes, but this was just a theological position, an eschatological position, if you want, and it didn't really matter politically. Rereading the material and writing this book, I'm, I, I don't agree. I, I think that um, the evangelical Christians who were even uh, there before the, the Jewish, the early Zionists among the Jews, understood that they could not build only uh, uh, on religious argumentation if they wanted. Palestine to be part of the Christian world. And because of their religious outlook, 
they had a very clear role for the Jews in it. So, so uh, uh, you can see how they develop from being a group, if you want, of marginal evangelical preachers into political strategists who eventually influenced the British government because uh, they wanted to convince the British Empire a, that Palestine should be British, and not everybody in Britain thought that Palestine should be British. And secondly, that it should not only be British, it should be also be Jewish. A Jewish-British Palestine, if you want. And, and they played a crucial role uh, in, in not, not only in convincing the British government eventually to decide to occupy Palestine, to violate some agreements they had with the French, but also to make sure that the occupation is closely connected to the creation of a Jewish state. Um, they even uh, made sure that Zionists like Herzl, who sometimes had different ideas of where to build the Jewish state, like in Uganda, would not be deviated, uh, would not deviate from, from Palestine as the major uh, outlook. In a similar way, um, it's very clear that uh, uh, later on, American presidents, uh, Harry Truman, uh, uh, surprisingly, a lot of Democratic presidents had uh, had um, had religious upbringing that uh, played a role in uh, in a way that was fully exploited by the pro-Israeli lobby, namely. That by itself did not explain their unconditional support for Israel, but it helped those who wanted to influence them to be pro-Israelis. Uh, you know, you read uh, the, bio the biographies of uh, uh, Tony Blair um, uh, and uh, his successor, now I forgot his name. Um, Gordon Brown. Oh, Gordon Brown, thank you. Um, you know... It's, it's part of their upbringing. It's part of their upbringing. Uh, and um, I think this is an important factor. But I would, Roberto, I would say it's a bit, I think the word religion here can be a bit misleading. It's, it's a much more a, a self-sense of what is civilization. There is, in their mind, there is something which I don't believe in, but they believe in. The Judeo-Christian civilization and not culture civilization it's much more much more elaborate than culture and and they really believe that this judeo-christian it doesn't matter whether it's correct or not but they really believe that this is the only universal moral foundation for building a better world and, and there are many forces who want to destroy that civilization uh and therefore israel is part of that heritage, that civilization, uh, and, and I don't think you can always distinguish between sinister, you know, strategic uh, uh, reasons for supporting uh, Israel and this sense of culture, superior, civilizational, if you want, superiority, uh, a kind of a Samuel Huntington idea of the clash of civilization. I think it's all there. I'm trying in the book to show uh, how um, the great achievement of the pro-Israeli lobby once it was institutionalized 
was to understand that you can always, in the last resort, go over there to that area. Uh, you, you know, where, where it's not easy to convince, especially when more and more people understood what Israel was doing in Palestine, it became a bit more difficult to lobby for Israel. Uh, and that's when you kind of take out of the, uh, you, you know, out of your reservoir of arguments, you are left with that kind of argument. Now, of course, uh, we know that the pro-Israeli lobbyists nowadays uh, don't even succeed with that, and, and they're weaponizing anti-Semitism just to make sure, but also weaponizing anti-Semitism is connected to it, in my mind. It's, uh, it's saying to the Christian world, we have this very complicated relationship with you. We understood it. You didn't want us in Europe, and we had an agreement. We will not be in Europe, but you will help us to take over Palestine. So keep your part of the deal. Uh, if otherwise you have not solved the anti-Semitic uh, issue, you know, it's, it's, I think it's worth looking into it. So I agree with you, just to make a long, a long response, very short. Yes, I, I think um, a sense of what is Christ, Judeo-Christian uh, is a very racist idea that uh, I think informs uh, the world of, of some of the political elites uh, uh, in Europe. And uh, sometimes for me, it's even a distraction for other things that worry them, like minorities in Europe, uh, non-Europeans who are Europeans, non-Americans who are Americans. But this is not nice. You cannot say that. So I, I think that this is also connected to this. This is That's why I think that only when Europeans and Americans would face uh, the whole idea of whiteness of Western colonization that continues today, I think this will affect uh, also the attitude towards uh, Palestine uh, and Israel. And paradoxically, when we think about Christian Zionism, this is always uh, an argument that I make and I teach my students, is that Christian Zionism is inherently anti anti-Semitic because in the end, the whole story goes that once all of the Jews will be gathered in what was the kingdom of Israel, half of them will perish and the other half will convert to Christianity, which is not exactly like, you know, it, it's definitely anti-Semitic. It's, uh, it's paradoxical that uh, pro-Israeli lobbies actually rely on that, given the fact that it's anti-Semitic in nature. It is totally anti-Semitic, but th there is, an unfortunately, this link between anti-Semitism and Zionism. Both ideological movements want to see the Jews not living in the West, but in Palestine, for different reasons. But but in the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's a uniformity of, 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 of objective. But it's very interesting, you know, the moment uh, uh, Netanyahu is a young uh, Israeli ambassador to the United Nations in the early 90s, 1990s, the moment he institutionalized, despite a lot of uh, uh, objection from the Orthodox Jews in Israel, the moment he institutionalized an official alliance with Christian Zionism, and I show it in the book, they suddenly removed any mentioning to the conversion of Jews to Christianity and they're barbecuing in hell if they don't do this. Uh, they were very careful. It's, and and I, I, I checked it. I, I looked at uh, books and PC games 
that appeared after 2000, uh, where the whole dogma was there, but not this part. Now, it doesn't mean they stopped believing in it, but they understood that this cannot work. So, so now you have this uh, idea that uh, the Jews in, in, in Palestine, there's a lot of time. They don't need to convert to Christianity. It's far more important for the Christian Zionists now to support Israel with a life if needed. This is far more important than looking forward to uh, a conversion, which was not the case uh, before uh, uh, 1990, when Christian Zionism was very openly talking about this uh, conversion. But you're right, it's, it's very paradoxical. But you know, the moment you lose the moral justification for policy, maybe even for your own state, you are not very choosy when it comes to allies. Uh, uh, there are also a lot of secular anti-Semites that are very good friends of Israel. Orban in, in, in Hungary, uh, I forgot the name of the Italian, uh, I think it's Finney. Yeah, Finney, and then now, of course, the newer generation, Matteo Salvini, Giorgia Meloni, who may become the next, uh, uh, you know, government in Italy. They were open, they were received in Israel with open arms, as, as were the right wing in Austria. Uh, and, and some of the right wing in Germany, as absurd as it, as it might uh, sound. So yeah, yeah, unfortunately, this is uh, an inevitable uh, development, given the fact that Israel cannot use force in order to convince the world that it has a moral argument that can win uh, by itself. I have one more question about history and then a couple of questions about politics. I would like to ask you something about one of the most controversial uh, for some, for some it's not even a question, and dramatic incidents of the 1948 war, Darius Sin, which often pops up in many debates. Today Darius Sin no longer exists and uh, what was left has become essentially part of a, uh, a village just in the outskirts of Jerusalem, Kfar Shaul. Why is it so controversial in Israel? Why, despite the evidence and even the testimonies by some of the people that perpetrated violence, still it's uh, some sort of a, you know, taboo talking about their scene and similar episodes? Yeah, definitely. The, 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 um, the Israeli self-image is uh, uh, this uh, oxymoron that uh, Israel has the, the most moral army uh, in the world. It's, it's the sense is that you, you have to believe in the morality uh, of, of, of the army in order to stop any questioning about its behavior. Uh, and, and I think that the, the uh, indoctrination in Israel is such that um, it's based on the realization that you will have to make to and so you, have to, you will have to perpetrate other Diria scenes in the future. I mean, they are doing little Diria scenes every now and then in, in the West Bank, and not to mention the Gaza Strip. And, and, and uh, so the realization on whoever holds the helm in terms of strategizing for Israel is that um, the, these kinds of actions that happened in 48, including the massacre in Diria scene, uh, will be part of the collateral damage that needs to be done in order to survive. That's the way they see it. Um, now, they realize 
that this raises moral uh, uh, questions. Uh, and in order to make sure that these moral questions are not uh, discussed, uh, you try, first of all, to create denial. It's like, you know, and you use, and they're using quite cleverly some of the established historians in Israel to, to very typical to Zionist historiography. Uh, the numbers are exaggerated. Uh, uh, yeah, in the war, people are being killed. It's not exactly a massacre um, and, and so on. Uh, in order to say to the average person in the street, you know, our historians have looked into it. It's not a massacre. It's something you are familiar with, dear citizen, which happened in a war, like in a war, unfortunately, some innocent people are being killed. Uh, so I think this is why it's a taboo. It's a taboo because if, if it will be fully discussed, uh, it would uh, bring back, it would bring to the fore what anybody who studies settler colonial movements in general would, would know, that movements like this are being informed by the wish to get rid of the native population, either by killing them, by expelling them, and so on. Uh, and, um, and this is something that at least uh, some of the Israelis are not willing to admit. Some of the Israelis, like our friends Ben Gvir and his thoughts, are not worried to admit, they're actually quite proud of it. But the basic message is the following. If, 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 we, if someone says that we massacred, probably it's not true. And if it's true, it's not a massacre that was, uh, uh, the Palestinians are to be blamed for that. Uh, and, and you know it, it, it's, it occurs on a daily basis. Whenever someone at, at, at all, doesn't happen that often, is willing to discuss this issue in Israeli uh, media or, or uh, academia. So, uh, so I think denial on the one hand and reframing uh, war crimes like Deir Yassin as legitimate uh, acts of self-defense are very important uh, uh, for, for justifying the, the continued oppression of the Palestinians. Otherwise, you, you have cracks in the wall. And as you know, some Israeli, young Israelis, it doesn't work on them. And, and they, they create uh, movements like Breaking the Silence and, and others, and they're beginning to have their doubts about uh, the morality of, of the Israeli actions. You've been uh, in the UK for quite some time. And I was wondering, what do you think Europeans in general still do not understand about Israel, Palestine, and Jerusalem? Yeah, I think the major... Again, of course, there are a lot of sections in the civil society in Europe who do understand. But the people who matter, in a way, the, the political elites, mainstream media and academia, I think do not understand the uh, ideological DNA of Israel. And uh, this ideology is manifested uh, uh, in two places in particular, Gaza and Jerusalem. Uh, and... and it's very difficult, especially for Europe, to utter the words Jewish racism. I think that's the main problem. That uh, it's uh, uh, because if you accept that racism is an integral part of the problem, uh, that's Jewish racism towards Palestinians, 
then you understand much better the sinister and cruelty uh, of the Israeli policies on the ground. If you if you say to yourself, I'm not allowed to talk about Jewish racism, we were so racist over the Jews, we're not going to bring it up, then you are bound to talk about excessive use of power, uh, exceptional uh, cases, but not get to the core of things. In other words, in a different way of looking at what what Europeans don't understand that ideology is still an important uh, part of life, uh, also in their own societies. I think <laughs> they, they sometimes don't understand their own ideology. Uh, um, uh, uh, that ideology plays a very important part of life, and it informs even the most uh, uh, you know small scale uh, operation of the Israelis. Uh, which might look like a tactical response to a problem, but the way it's being executed has a lot to do with the ideology. And, and a settler colonial ideology like Zionism, or what Zionism became more, more and more, is really uh, dehumanizing the Palestinians. And, um, and everything that somehow makes you feel that the Israelis are hesitating that they go to the court in order to kick out people in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, that they are uh, sorry if they killed uh, an unfortunate uh, uh, person in the old city and they ask for uh, saying, I'm sorry for that. People in Europe sometimes would think, you see, they're very moral there and so on. Um, I think it's really not genuine. It's not genuine. It's part of, 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 of a mechanism that wants to have the cake and uh, uh, keep, have the cake and eat it or eat the cake and have it. Um, namely, we are part of the civilized nations, but we'll have to do these non-civilized kind of, of, of activity. So, so I, I think that Europe, uh, official Europe, an official West, either don't want to understand that they are dealing here with an ideological regime, uh, or they don't understand that they are dealing with an ideological regime. And Israel was very clever in saying to them, if you are op if you are at all dealing with ideology, namely anti-Zionism, you are anti-Semites. That's the silencer. That's the silencer. This is what they do in order that the discussion will never be on the ideology. You are entitled to question our policy here and there, but you cannot do what you did to apartheid South Africa. You cannot question the ideology of the region. And yet it will be just enough to look at individuals like Itamar Ben-Vir, who is a politician and in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, and is in the upcoming elections, some polls suggest that he might gather more than 15 seats. Mm -hmm. And he is, is quite open uh, talking about expulsion of Arab citizens, essentially, you know, a second Nakba and, uh, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing, and also promoting the idea of retaking Temple Mount, so, you know, destroying Aram al-Sharif and reconstituting a, a, a third temple. So I wonder, how do you see these kind of individuals? Well, it's, it's interesting. For, for, uh, for a while, Israel was able to sell to the world that, like every society, they have lunatic margins. 
So you have lunatic margins. Now, of course, we know that these are not margins. They may be lunatic or not. That's that's another question. But they're not marginal. They're definitely not marginal. Um, it will be a problem for Israel. That would be very difficult because this is an un, in, inevitable development in Israel that the national religious group, together with a large section of the electorate that was left behind for uh, as on the social margins of Israel, many of them Arab Jews, uh, uh, this combination between deprived uh, uh, groups of people on a social and economic basis, on the one hand, together with a very in close indoctrinated national religious group, um, is, go is slowly getting the center, and not only the center, but also the you know, powerful position in the states. Uh, they are now constituting a very important part of the uh, uh, officers' corps in, in the army. They are getting to high position in the secret service, uh, in, in politics. Uh, so uh, I think it's inevitable because you, can, you cannot be a benevolent racist. And you cannot be a progressive ethnic cleanser. And you cannot be an enlightened occupier. You can be one or the other. You cannot be both. And what this particular ideology, ideological group did was to produce a younger generation that in many ways, rightly, is being told there's no need for this charade. We are uh, supposed to be racist by religious imperative. And, uh, uh, and by national imperative. And uh, yes, the world likes it or doesn't like it. Who cares? I mean, they also will have a reality check, I think. I'm not that pessimistic. I think they will, we know, uh, if the Benvirus take over Israel, I'm not sure that the United States will be there with them. I'm not totally sure. So, so I, I mean, this is, this is where you, you, you sit in front of a Palestinian friend and you really don't know what to say because on the one hand, the more the true nature of this right-wing nationalism is exposed, the easier it is to persuade people in the world to view Israel as apartheid South Africa. That's one side of the coin. The second kind side of the coin is the more these people get power, the more Palestinians would suffer. So um, it's like you, you try to say to people, this is in the short run, and the other, and the more positive result of this would be in the long run. But for people who suffer, the long run sometimes is meaningless and in an understandable way. But, but yeah, yeah I, I think it's not a marginal uh, uh, thing anymore. It's a very powerful thing in the center. Maybe there is still a group of secular and the more progressive religious people in Israel who are trying to create a kind of a, a counter force. The main problem for them is you cannot create a counter force to this kind of politics in Israel if you don't ally yourself with the Palestinians. I have a feeling from your voice that you're not very optimistic about the results of the upcoming elections. <laughs> 
it's putting it mildly. Um, uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, in order to have a true uh, coalition that can stop this uh, very dangerous uh, uh, national religious uh, Judaism uh, 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 that is the version of Judaism that is adopted by by these people, in order to, do, you, you need an alliance. You need an alliance, um, uh, and um, this alliance is not going to happen because even the liberal Zionists and so on cannot see themselves, cannot see the Palestinians as equal partners. And if they don't see them as equal partners, there will be no alliance. I'm also don't, I also don't see uh, enough unity on the Palestinian side to produce the liberation movement that could stop it by a liberation struggle. But I'm more optimistic there. I, I think that uh, the younger generation of Palestinians uh, might, might, I'm not a prophet, might create a different kind of Palestinian political movement of liberation, uh, might be able to, to, to create a more effective liberation uh, struggle, uh, especially if, if we are right that this is a trend in Israeli politics, because I think they will be more legitimized in the eyes of the international community, the more these groups will become visible to the global eye. I have one last question, and it's very much centered uh, around the question of apartheid. Certainly, if we look around Jerusalem, we see that Jerusalem is being segregated, like many other parts of the country, but there are many people that would argue there is real apartheid in Jerusalem. Some also say there is apartheid throughout Israel. What's your view about it? Is there a real case of apartheid in Israel? And if so, what do you mean by apartheid? How would you define this concept in relation to Israel, Palestine, and Jerusalem? First of all, I, I think we have to distinguish between two kinds of apartheid. There is the apartheid version of South Africa, and there is the more generic, general phenomenon of apartheid. The apartheid of the south of the United States up to the 1970s was different uh, from the one in South Africa, although it had some similar uh, uh, features. So, so I think that there are many faces to apartheid. And, and definitely the Israeli version in some parts is similar to the South African one. In some parts it's different. There are some Palestinian groups who have a better life under Israel than the Africans had under apartheid, and there are some Palestinian groups who fare much worse than Africans have uh, uh, fared under uh, South African apartheid. So when we talk about full apartheid, either in Jerusalem or, or in Palestine, it is full not only in the way that it is exercised daily, namely uh, different roads for people, uh, different rites of prayer, uh, and uh, different distribution of resources, and of course, ethnically cleansing the Jerusalem, the Palestinian uh, community in, in, in the greater Jerusalem area, and so on. This is one part of the full apartheid. The other one is the potential that the regime has at any given moment to totally disregard the basic civil rights and human rights of any Palestinian in the greater Jerusalem area. This, and, and also inside Israel, also even inside Israel. Uh, um, 
there is no legal, real legal defense uh, for someone whom the Israelis would regard uh, as a danger or they don't want them there. And this is the worst kind of apartheid. Of course, there is the apartheid of roads and, and, and space, of course, is very important. Uh, and uh, as I say, ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians compared to the expansion of Jewish settlement and so on. Yes, definitely. But I think the comprehensive side of apartheid is the fact that every Palestinian who is born is a potential uh, a criminal in the eyes of the Israelis and could easily either be incarcerated, expelled, robbed of their uh, citizenship or the right of being a resident. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether they live, this is what is so comprehensive about it, it doesn't matter if they live in Ramallah under the PA, if they are Israeli citizens in Haifa or in Jerusalem or they are under siege in Gaza. Uh, uh, Israel sees no problem, sees no problem in demolishing houses, in expelling people and killing people and so on. And I think that's the apartheid. That's the, that's the worst side of the Israeli apartheid. It's the dehumanization. Of, of the Palestinians. It's, it's less the, the, what Uri Davis used to call the petty apartheid of South Africa. Different benches, different toilets, different so on. It's, it's, it's horrific, horrific if this happens. But I think it's far worse if your life don't matter compared to the life of a Jew. And uh, this is, of course, there are communities in the world Agamben and others have, have written about, about it. And, and Paul Gilroy talks about infrahumanity. I mean, we have categories, but this, these are usually, uh, and, and it's terrible, refers to refugees, life seekers, uh, immigrants. Here we have an indigenous population that is, you know, every one of it has uh, is being. Uh, under that kind of segregation between who has the right to live and who doesn't have an automatic right uh, to live and to live in not to mention to live in dignity and, and prosperity uh, uh, and well-being. This was Professor Ilan Pape, Professor of History, Director of the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter. Ilan, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed season three. With this episode dedicated to Jerusalem with Ilan Pape, we ended season three. I will let you know when season four will start, and I hope in the meantime you will find the time to leave reviews of the podcast on the various platforms, and perhaps you can also want to send a message through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or directly to my email suggesting guest, your favorite guest, podcast. In the meantime, once again, enjoy all of the episodes of Jerusalem Unplugged. Spread the word about it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 